Hello, lovers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hello, Lover. Today, I am talking with Trina Wintour about the episode entitled Cock-a-doodle-doo in Season 3, Episode 18 of Sex and the City. So, I was excited to meet Trina. We did the SheDot Festival together in Toronto. She is from Montreal and uh, very hilarious. If you want to see her in any shows coming up, she is doing an off-JFL show called Crazy Sexy 90s. And that is going to be at the Wiggle Room on St. Laurent Boulevard. Uh, so yeah, if you are in Montreal at that time, July 20th to the 22nd, definitely check that out. And um, I was really excited to get to talk to Trana. And when I mentioned my podcast, she said that she would like to talk about this episode. So I definitely jumped on that opportunity because... It is a problematic episode that's a little cringeworthy to watch in some parts, and I was glad to find someone classy who wanted to talk about it with a little bit of humor, but also maybe educate uh, people about why uh, it isn't the greatest. So yeah, I guess we'll just launch right into it, and I want to thank Trana for doing my show because... Um, it's always nice to talk to people outside of my immediate friend circle, and now I feel like I have made a new friend. So, yeah, let's just get right into it. Get that thing out of my ass or I'm going to shit on it! I mean, is that the dirtiest thing you've ever heard? Let's hope so! Hello? Hello, Trana. Hey. Hey, it's Melanie. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Good. Am I pronouncing your name right, Trana? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, I just finished watching um, Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it yesterday, um, but I mean, I've literally seen it a million times. Yeah. When was it? How, what's your relationship like with Sex and the City? I guess we'll start there. Um, It's some... Um... I started watching it um, probably when I was too young to be to be watching it. Um, I started watching it when I was around 13. Um, oh, okay. I remember the first season had come out um, on VHS and DVD back then, and I got my aunt to buy me, like, the VHS box set of the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, like, fell in love with it. And obviously as a kid, you look at Carrie and she's like so cool and you just want to be like her. And then you grow up and you realize how awful she is. (laughs) Um, So like, I don't know, Sex and the City has been just a big part of my life in general. Like when I was in high school, it was still originally airing and in Canada, Bravo used to air it. So I used to watch it here, like as it was happening. Um, So I was like one of the original viewers. (laughs) Wow. So Um, in like at the age you were, so this is like a, a coming of age kind of like it yeah. was defining you sexually. Yeah, which is why it was not a good thing because it's <laughs> not a great show to look up to. Like Carrie is not a role model in any way, mm-hmm. and um, I feel like the show has aged really badly. Um, and even though like I was watching it when it originally aired. Um, since it went off the air, like, I've never stopped watching it. Like, I'll usually do, like, the whole cycle once a year. I just have this emotional or nostalgic attachment to it. And that's never really gone away. So even as a grown-up watching it now, I can see so much of what's wrong with it. I still, there's still something about it that I love. Yeah. And that's the whole reason why I wanted to do the podcast, because I was like, we are still all fixated by it, like, the people that watched it. 
when it was on and yeah, I can I can see so many flaws in it, but I still I can't stop watching it. I revisit it all the time. Yeah, exactly. Me too. I don't know what that is. I think like uh, like you mentioned, you know, like I started watching it in my like coming of age years, so I guess there's that attachment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think also um, despite all their flaws, like I there's something about those girls that I just love. They're they're just very gorgeous to watch you know Mm -hmm. they're Um, real and what i what i will say is good about it is having a flawed protagonist like carrie she does especially in this episode she gets called on her shit and i think she portrays her in a flawed way i don't think she portrays her in this romantic like i'm the best person ever type of way i think we all when i watch it when i'm older i'm like it's seems purposeful that she's flawed. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, And I think that I've noticed on Instagram, I'm sure you've heard of this account called Every Outfit on Sex and the City. Yeah. It's brilliant, and I wish that I had come up with that idea. Oh, my God, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, But I love that Sarah Jessica Parker is actually following them. And a lot of their posts can be very critical of Carrie, not just in terms of her wardrobe choices, but also just in terms of the character's life choices. And I've mm-hmm. noticed it's there Jessica Parker likes a lot of the posts and responds. So I think you're right. I think that it is deliberate on her part to play Carrie in a flawed way, because when this Instagram account brings up Carrie's flaws, SJP sort of acknowledges that and, and even likes it. So I think you're right. Yeah, and I think the problem was, like, you were watching it when you were 13. I was watching it when I was, like, early 20s, so still figuring out dating. I don't think I, I don't think either of us were supposed to look up to Carrie, but because we were younger, she just seemed so fabulous because we hadn't had the life experience yet. Exactly, and I think that for me, in those years that I was, that I first watched it, those were my high school years, those were you know, difficult years, lonely years, and I looked at these girls as living these, like, glamorous lives, you know, it was something that I wanted for myself, I wanted to have great friends like that, I wanted to have a a cool apartment of my own, I wanted to have amazing clothes, just all of those things, there was definitely this, like, aspirational element to it as a kid that, you know, is not there for me anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that an aunt bought you the box set. Was she like yeah. a cool aunt for you? Yeah, exactly. I'd asked for it for Christmas. Um, and because my mom would not have gotten it. And funnily enough, like even my mom every now and then, like even till this day, sometimes will just bring up like, you know, I probably shouldn't have let you watch that show so young. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, looking back on it now, like in terms of the way that it deals with sexuality, um, I mean, it, it, it feels like a very like PG-13 show now, but back then it was like the sexuality of the show was so over the top and it was something that we hadn't really seen before in a television show. But now compared to shows like um, Shameless and, and other shows that have, you know, that we've embraced over the past few years sex in the city is so nothing Mm -hmm. um it's not graphic at all no it's yeah it's that's funny it is kind of like pg-ish but you think about the fact that 
within the first few episodes, they're debating whether or not they should have anal sex and how <laughs> huge that is for women on like that wasn't something that we were talking about openly. Yeah, that's true. definitely like sex in the city definitely opened that door. Um, but that's another thing too, that I find always strange kind of, um, when I will, you know, watch it with every passing year is just how, you know, narrow minded, especially Carrie could be when it came mm -hmm. to sex and sexuality. And I think that cockadoodle do is a great example of that. Like their, mm -hmm. their narrow mindedness towards these like transgender sex workers, um, yeah. is just astounding to me. It's really one of the episodes that I have the hardest time watching now. Oh, no, and that's, like, it's interesting because that's why on my Instagram I was like, I can't believe I found someone to talk about this episode with. Because, like, there's episodes that when I watch, I almost have to, like, close my eyes and, like, close my, like, put my fingers in my ears for certain parts because it's like, oh, and this is the part that makes me feel bad for liking this show. I'm like, exactly me too, because this one is really problematic. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk about it, actually, because, you know, there's a lot when I rewatch the show that I can just sort of accept as being a product of its time, and you just sort of let it slide and just roll with it. But this episode is really hard to um, let slide in that way. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so transphobic. It's so anti trans it's so anti-nonconformity in such an intense way mm -hmm. and what's frustrating for me about that was it's otherwise such a well-written episode which is frustrating because yes. anything that's happening of like you have the trans sex workers but everything else there's some of the most honest conversations there's some of the best moments between characters so it's hard because if it were an all-over terrible episode, you could almost write it off, but it's sort of this iconic episode. Exactly. And then there's this transphobic nonsense throughout, and it it ruins it, and it's an episode that people are going to continue to watch because of how well-written it is, but then you have this horribly written thing in the exactly. middle of it. And I love that you just put it that way because especially as I was watching it in preparation for our conversation today, um, because you're right, there is so much going on in that episode that is great, that is iconic. I think it is definitely one of the most iconic episodes in the show. And it made me realize as I was watching it, I'm like, why is this storyline even here? Mm -hmm. Because when you think about everything that's going on in that episode between the characters and it's the last episode of season three, so it's sort of the culmination of everything that's happened in the entire season. And I couldn't, I, I mean, I hate to quote Carrie, but I couldn't help but wonder, um, <laughs> why is this storyline even in this episode? Like, it has nothing to do with any of the characters. Um, it has nothing to do with anything that happened in the season. And if you take that storyline out of the episode, the episode is still totally complete. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, why was this even there? Like, it was just this sort of way, but this, because Sex and the City is sort of known for having, like, dealt with every kind of, you know, sexual taboo, was this just their way of introducing the idea of transgender because it's something they hadn't spoken about before? Like, do they just think we could just throw this in here? Yeah, it's I like... I don't get why it's even there. 
I was trying to think of the through line of the episode because most episodes have kind of a through line. And I was like, okay, there's kind of things you can't get out of your head. So like Carrie is being woken up by these roosters and Samantha's being woken up by these trans sex workers outside her window. So it's like, I guess somebody in the writer's room was like, oh, a, a rooster and then someone with a cock and, oh, that's so funny. And then they just had right. to do it. And I it's think like, you're, you're probably dead on. Yeah. And it's like, maybe you just sacrifice your little, like, wordplay that you thought of in the writer's room and, like, let it go. Like, that doesn't – it didn't – you're right. It doesn't contribute to the storyline at all. I mean, and I think they did a lot of that in the later seasons. There's a lot of things like, you know, the whole storyline with Charlotte getting her dog in the later season is just so irrelevant. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like sometimes it's just that's another flaw in the show as a whole, especially in the later seasons. Just these these things that would just be thrown in as filler for a lot of episodes. And I definitely feel that with this particular episode. And I think that this is. You know, it's also about that idea of just, like, representation and how important it is in television. Because I remember, you know, again, being, like, a 13-year-old kid and watching Sex and the City and even watching other shows like Will and Grace around the same time. Like, there were no trans characters on TV or very, very few. And their depictions were always so limited. And they were always sort of portrayed as drag queens. And I think for me personally, it's a big reason why it took me so long in my life to really understand myself as a trans person, because growing up, I just didn't have any examples. I didn't have any examples in my personal life, and I didn't have any examples, um, you know, in the media that I was consuming either. And that's why it's kind of sad that, like, the one time Sex and the City tackles you know, the idea of the trans experience, it's done in this, like, really insulting and limiting way. Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive into the, the episode a bit and just kind of recap it, I guess, for anyone who hasn't seen it, because they're saying how problematic it is. So Samantha wakes up in the night, and there are some trans sex workers outside of her window and they're shouting like obscene things at the cars as they go by and then for me it's really the brunch conversation where it gets pretty problematic exactly which i mean i was really especially this time again just really paying attention to what they were saying and there's it comes up in the brunch conversation and it's something that's carried through the rest of the episode this idea of like trans people being half woman half man Mm-hmm. They constantly refer to that. Um, it's a line that, like, even Carrie picks up in her narration um, when she talks about, you know, later on in the episode when Samantha sort of retaliates against them um, and sort of uses her feminine charm to get what she wants from them, which is to be quiet. And Carrie kind of says in her narration, you know, like, Samantha can always get her way with a man, even if they're half a woman. Yeah. And so that idea of, like, trans people being half something and half something else is so wrong, mm-hmm. um, is so wrong. And it contributes to this idea of trans people being these sort of alien or monstrous creatures. And back to that brunch conversation, Miranda sort of cements that when she's like, I don't see the appeal there. Oh, I'm so glad you quoted that part because that was the line that I was like, well, it's not 
for you, Miranda. Like, he's like, I don't see the appeal. And it's like, well, not everyone exists for your pleasure. It just, it feels so tone deaf to say something like that. Exactly. And even Samantha at that brunch conversation, um, or it might have been a little bit later, at one point says, you know, like, I understand, a new, you know, that certain gentlemen from New Jersey need to, you know, need to get what they want or however she phrased it. But there's oh, this idea of like, only. Um, like sort of like men that are, she said something about sexually confused or like pseudo homosexual men or like. Something. Yeah, exactly. And like, and adding like from New Jersey, like that these are like, that the only men who would be interested in a trans woman is some like lowly man, you know, like, like some a, sort of desperate, pathetic man from New Jersey would, only, mm-hmm. you know, those are the only kind of men that would be interested in a trans woman. And like um, a sexual fetish, like not a person, but oh, I, I get my kicks this way. Exactly. And they even, to drive that point home, I mean, I forget, um, I think it's Miranda again, who basically, you know, when they're sort of talking about who would be interested in a person like that, and then Miranda basically says, it's the other white meat. Oh, that's what Carrie says. Carrie said that. Okay, if I couldn't remember a, if it was a Miranda or Carrie. If it's a pun, it's always Carrie. She's always got some little, <laughs> yeah. like, huh, yeah. and little, like, waggly finger. It's the that's other white meat. very true. Meat. Um, like, so you, very objectifying. Exactly. And it's that idea, like, that whole brunch conversation is really dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, to trans people. And I think that, you know, even though that episode probably was aired in like probably around the year 2000, um, you know, it's this, that idea of, you know, sort of who would be interested in a trans woman really still holds true today. Like I can't even tell you how like difficult it is to date as a trans woman, especially as a trans woman who is interested in men. And I think that a lot of the media, um, you know, going back to that episode of Sex and the City and a lot of things in current day media, just sort of portray men who are interested in trans women as as being sort of like perverts or being sort of there's something wrong with them, like there's something wrong for a person who's interested in trans people. And it's so hard to 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 debunk that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so challenging to just to say to men, like, it's okay to be interested in trans women. Like, we're just people, too. And I think that's why a lot of men who, who are attracted to trans women and want to be with trans women are always so secretive about it. There's this shame that's attached to it. Yeah. Do you, when when you have been approached, like, are there are there people that have that secrecy about it? Absolutely. Oh, my God. Like, more often than not, unfortunately. And, you know, again, a lot of men who are interested in trans women, there is that objectification. There is this um, fetishizing of it and looking at this person as not a person, but just as a sort of sex toy or like sex creature. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it makes it really difficult for there to be, you know, meaningful relationships. Um, And I think shows like Sex and the City in that particular episode contribute to that, contribute to the shame um, that men have for being interested in being, sorry, in being interested in trans women. Mm -hmm. And I think like that was kind of a huge problem in the 2000s in general, like even on a much smaller scale, I remember 
I was 18. I had pink hair and I went to the bar for the first time and a guy was like, I've always wanted to fuck a girl with pink hair. And oh, I was like, oh, okay, thank you. Like, it's like, what do I, and just the idea that if you, like, you're not attracted to a person, you're attracted to a thing about them. And exactly. like, in my circle, it was always like, oh, I'm I'm really into brown guys right now. Or like, have you ever fucked a black guy? And like, just the, like, people reducing someone down to like, oh, never had this before, kind of, versus I connected with this person sexually. Exactly. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about so many different Sex in the City episodes, and I think that was very much the show, and th that's an example of the show very much being a product of its time. Mm -hmm. I mean, most episodes, when they were dealing with some kind of taboo, it was very much in that sense, like, have you ever done this before? And mm -hmm. it, was, it was about zeroing in on something about a person rather than that person as a whole. Exactly. And it's interesting because, yeah, there there were these conversations, and I think at the time that was considered progressive because it's like, oh, we're talking about sex in all these different ways, but they thought they were progressive just because they were talking about having sex a different way than you normally have it, but they still weren't talking about hum the humanity behind it. Exactly. Exactly, which, you know, is probably ultimately the biggest problem with Sex in the City as a show as a whole, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's just very much a product of its time in that sense. I don't think, you know, so much of the conversations that we have now about representation and what is okay, what's not, how to look at someone as a human being rather than just as this sort of label um, so many of the discussions that we're having now in a, in a much more real way and in a much more in-depth way were just not happening then. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, because the the women of Sex and the City who portrayed these characters, like Sarah Jessica Parker grew up on Broadway, like she's been acting since she was 11 years old on professional Broadway stages with people from all walks of life. Uh, Cynthia Nixon is a lesbian. I just wonder, like, in retrospect, if they ever think about how what they were portraying was so limited versus their lived experience. Right. I have a feeling they don't think about the show that much. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling they, they do not rewatch it. I think that now with social media and the fact that we have access to these people, I mean, you can tweet Kim Cattrall. I've mm -hmm. tweeted him like a million times she's actually super interactive and oh. and will respond and i think you know that if anything um is making them maybe look back a little bit whereas if there wasn't you know social media and this sort of um continual interest in sex in the city um they probably wouldn't think about it but i think even that account every outfit on sex in the city does a really great job uh, on a regular basis of like critiquing the show's limitations, and again, Sarah Jessica Parker is seeing that. So I think maybe in that sense, there there might be a sort of reevaluation. Mm hmm. It would be interesting to see them all come together because there's this idea that, like, just the other day, I was teaching a comedy workshop, and somebody was like, "Oh, how do you know how not to be offensive these days?" Like, kind of making a reference as though like 
these days we're living in a time when everyone's offended and it's like no we've just become aware of our shortcomings and things that we used to say that aren't okay now so it would be interesting to have a talk like if these if the women came together and did a panel discussion about different issues that were raised on sex in the city and how did I think that would be amazing Um, I'm always disappointed when I see um, you know like Obviously, whenever Sarah Jessica Parker does an interview, she still always gets asked about Sex in the City. That's always going to be part of the discussion. She's so associated with this iconic show and iconic role. I just wish the interviewers who get the chance to interview her would ask her more interesting things, things along Mm -hmm. these lines instead of just like, you know, when's the next Sex in the City movie coming out or... um, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the, the interviewers never really go any deeper, which is too bad because they have access to to the stars of the show. Yeah, and what's interesting is the show has been reduced to like, oh, it was a show about shoes. Like, no, it, no, it wasn't. <laughs> like it was on for seven, six or seven seasons. It wasn't. How how could it be about shoes? Like it was a show about relationships and. And like we were saying earlier, there were some really nice, fully fleshed out relationships amid this problematic, and that that would be super interesting to talk about. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you're doing, like, this podcast, such a great way to, like, to bring up these issues. Because, again, like, for whatever reason, that indescribable love that so many of us still have for the show is very much real. And I feel like Sex and the City now is just as popular as a lot of the shows that, you know, have come out in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's still very much part of the pop culture discussion. It yeah. really hasn't gone away, and more and more people are finding their way to the show. Oh, yeah, it's uh, now it's on Crave TV, so there's going to be a whole resurgence. Like when Buffy was on Netflix, suddenly a whole new generation started watching Buffy. So it's not going to go away anytime soon. Exactly. But I think that, again, because it's so much a product of, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, um, to watch it now, like, I can only imagine what it would be like to watch it now in 2017 for the very first time. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people can really, like, would someone still, like, someone watching it now for the very first time, would they love this show? Because um, I feel like so much of my love is part of the nostalgia and what it meant to me, you know, as a young person watching it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because there are there are relationship issues they run into that I can still identify with, but in a past kind of way because I do feel that I felt more like these characters in my twenties, and now I'm in my and now I am the age that they were on the show and I'm like you're really staying up nights obsessing over this like it feels (laughs) yeah it's very juvenile sometimes I mean even you know to get back to the episode like there's that fight between Carrie and Miranda Mm -hmm. um because you know obviously the biggest storyline in season three was Carrie cheating on Aiden with Big and you know how all of that exploded and blew up in her face And yet, despite everything that happened in the season, Carrie is still going to go have lunch with Big, and Miranda freaks out at her. And -hmm. it's just sort of like, wake up, Carrie. Like, how many times are you going to keep going back to this person who is so Mm -hmm. awful for you? And Um, that moment is so well written in this episode. Like, that's 
one of the fights that like my friends and I used to quote, we would be like, and I had a whole Miranda moment with her and I told her, you know, like that was like, that's one of my most memorable moments from Sex and the City because they rarely call each other on their shit. Exactly. Especially like when you think about um, how ultimately pretty unsupportive Carrie is of the girls and their problems. You know, Mm -hmm. Carrie's very much focused on her own problems and she can sort of help other people if there's not too much going on with her. But as soon as there's something going on with her, it's like she doesn't, she can't be there for other people. She doesn't know how to be there for other people. Yeah, she's quite, she's quite self-centered. And I think that makes sense as the writer character that she's kind of just seeing everyone as little like characters in her play that she's writing. Like she yes. definitely isn't as actively involved with her life as the other ones are. That's such a good point. That is such a good point. Um, I totally agree with that. I totally agree. Yeah, and it's like, have you ever met someone like that before that's like, oh, you're just too much, and they're kind of treating you like they're watching a movie and they're not really talking to you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very strange, but I guess, like, I think especially now with, like, everyone – living so much of their lives digitally, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it's sort of like everyone's making their own movie. Um, yeah. Everyone's presenting their life to the public um, in a way that they have some kind of control over. Um, and so it's, it, it is weird the way that we interact with one another. And I think that's only going to continue to get more and more strange. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, We've all kind of become our own Carrie Bradshaw's like, Honestly, in a way, I mean, like, you know, people will post things on Instagram, with a little caption about what's going on in their life at this exact moment. Some people, you know, sort of divulge everything about their lives in the way that her column was very much autobiographical and always about things that were, you know, going on in her immediate life. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I like, I really think she was one of the worst writers of all time. <laughs> yeah. I used to think... Okay, when I was watching the first couple seasons, I was like, oh, her voiceover is just her thinking, and then she writes an actual column from that. And then when she releases her book, and Big is reading excerpts from it, I was like, oh, that whole time, that was her column? Like, I had no idea that her, like, just train of thought was her column, and that she was getting paid to do this. Exactly. And I don't don't think it was in this particular episode because I rewatched a couple of like the the ending episodes of season three when I rewatched Cockadoodledoo um but there is this um part where um you know she's like she makes it seem like this giant shock she's like you know I had this like completely earth-shattering thought like what if the men that we're dating are not the problem what if we're the problem and it's like this is you're 35 years old and <laughs> The first time in your life that you're thinking that you're thinking you might be problematic. Yeah, and and the I, idea that I, you might be the problem is earth shattering. That's insane. I wrote that down too because this comes on the heels of her having an affair. Like yeah, there's just no self analysis at all on her part. Like her relationship absolutely ended because of her. There's no question that it ended because of her and then and I thought she was I thought she was taking accountability for that up until she's sitting there yeah being like 
oh my god, is it me? <laughs> well, I, which just made me laugh, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, like that's a new. I guess it's a new level to the humor of the show. Mm-hmm. It's like watching it in 2017. Um, with what we know now, with how we've evolved as a society and culture from the year 2000 till now, I guess that gives the show, like, another level of humor, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, because wondering. now there's this element of laughing at it as well as laughing with it. <laughs> and I wondered how self-aware it was in retrospect because she's like, I had this earth-shattering thought. And it's like, yeah, you just ran into the guy you cheated on, and now you're wondering if it was your fault that you – cheated on him well yeah like and I was like was were the writers being like oh wow like were they being self-aware or did they actually think that was an earth-shattering thought for Carrie I have so many questions I I don't think they were super self-aware I mean I agree with you that I think Sarah Jessica Parker was aware mm-hmm. um, in terms of what she was bringing to the character and how she was portraying the character but I tend to feel like the writers did sort of have Carrie on a pedestal um, and did sort of think she was this, like, great, modern, forward-thinking person. Um, And I think that – I think that the show started to go downhill the more and more that Michael Patrick King became basically the sole writer of the show. And he um, wrote and directed both movies all by himself. Like, there wasn't a team of writers like there was Mm -hmm. with the show. And so I think a lot of his intentions show up in the movies. That because when the show point. first started, it was just like, you know, it was gritty. It was, um, you know, sort of sarcastic and scathing. And it was the anti-fairy tale. And then by the end, you know, by those last two episodes in Paris, um, it, it became the fairy tale that it was supposed to be against, which is something that has always bothered me so much. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't realize because I was trying to think the other day, I was thinking about Michael Patrick King wrote some of the most iconic episodes. He wrote this episode and it has such wonderful, um, like Charlotte and Trey sitting on the floor talking about what went wrong in their relationship is a really beautiful moment. Um, And I was like, oh, how come Michael Patrick King took this bad turn? But you're right. It was when he was by himself writing the movies without the team of writers who have their own lived experience. Like he didn't have that influence anymore. Exactly. And I think that he is a brilliant person. Like he wrote um, and directed a lot of the comeback with Lisa Kutcher. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, I need um, to watch it. It's on, it's it's on Crave TV as well. But I think that Michael Patrick King definitely works best with a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though, like, the first season was pretty much written just by him and Darren Starr, but again, he had at least someone else. He had Darren working with him. Um, But I think when he's on his own, he tends to sort of, everything just becomes a little bit too flowery, you know, a little bit too perfect. Because I have seen, like, I watched uh, the DVD box set with his commentary, and he'll often be like, I remember looking at this in the editing room and being like, I can't believe I'm editing footage of Sarah Jessica Parker and Barishnikov. This is amazing. So, like, he did have a real flowery romance with just the fact that he was writing this show. Absolutely. So, so maybe it was hard to divorce from that. Yeah, and I think even the end of Cockadoodle Doo sort of wraps up, like, a little bit of a fairy tale, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone 
on the rooftop um, having this great time and, like, don't you worry about these girls. They have a very lovely life, you know? That, yeah. Yeah, no, say what you wanted to say about that. That line bothered me because (laughs) the whole time it was supposed to be that the the sex workers were supposed to be akin to the roosters. Like, they're supposed to be kind of the same deal. Right. And um, the the veteran the the person at the animal hospital was like, oh, don't worry about the roosters. They have a very lovely life. So then at the end of the episode, when Sarah Jessica Parker says, don't worry, they have a very lovely life. It's a close up on her and her friends, but it feels so tone deaf because it's like, really, you think the sex workers who you just demeaned and like treated like garbage, like you you made a barbecue for them and now they live a very lovely life. Like, it just feels like she just chose not to think about them as people and was just like, oh, and now we're all just drinking our flirtinis and having it and don't worry about them. And I'm like, I I am a little yeah. worried about them. I, yeah, exactly. It, it's so demeaning. It's so condescending. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like, you know, when you look back at that brunch conversation and how dehumanizing they were towards these trans sex workers and how um, insulting they were and how they really had no regard for these women. And then at the end, you know, there is a little bit of a regard for them or a little bit of a friendship that, that they strike up with the trans women, but it's only because now, like, they're having fun and, like, they can talk about fashion and clothes and just, like, you know what I mean? Like, is that the only way that these women are acceptable is when they're just, like, when they're like you, basically. Exactly. And it's like, oh, we're all having fun. Like, what that reminded me of is uh, groups of straight girls that you see at the gay bar that are like, oh, my God, we're at a gay bar. This is so edgy and fun. And, like, it, it reminded me of that kind of thing where it's like, we're not going to think about the reality of these people's lives, but we're going to kind of peep in on it and have a little laugh. Like, because when Carrie, one of the sex workers, admires Carrie's outfit, and then she starts kind of mocking her, like speaking yeah, like, like her. Yeah. And then she's like, like doing like drag queen talk, basically. Yeah, and she does this little accent, and she starts doing the finger waggle and doing the sassy little like. And then she suddenly starts acting a way she never does. And then when she sits down, Charlotte looks at her like, oh, my God. And they just, like, kind of giggle about it. (laughs) You, I mean, you just nailed it. Like, that's exactly what that is. It's exactly those girls who go to, like, gay clubs or whatever when they do something that's outside of their comfort zone. They're like, oh, we're so bad, (laughs) you know, or, like, this is so fun. This is so cutting edge. You got it right. That's, That's exactly what that whole treatment is. Um, and again, it's just too bad because Sex and the City really positioned it. They really positioned themselves as this show, um, again, that was progressive, that was something that a lot of, you know, women look to in sort of an educational way, which is so wrong, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's not what the writers intended, but in terms of the way that the show was talked about culturally, it was sort of regarded as this, you know, there was an educational element to it. Absolutely, and it was it was considered revolutionary in terms of how it how it portrayed sex, and 
Yeah, it's it's such a complicated conversation because I talked with uh, one of my other episodes is I'm talking with a gay man about uh, Stanford Blatch and how he's like he likes Stanford and like and I like Stanford. So it's like, OK, there's these kind of cool portrayals, but then there's these other really problematic ones. And it's like if you're just going to be a fluffy show, be a fluffy show. But if you're going to put yourself out there as like a revolutionary sexual this is how things are these days, um, modern kind of viewpoint, then you do have to examine everything you're doing and check to see if it's problematic and maybe be a little more researched. Like, I don't think exactly, but I just don't, I just don't think shows at that time and prior to that time felt that responsibility. I think now a lot of shows do, um, which is great. Um, Mm. But back then I don't think it was a concern at all. Yeah, like you, um, think you know, I feel like even for me as a comedian, like there's even in just the four years that I've been doing comedy, there has been an evolution in terms of my consideration of my own material and what I put in shows and what I don't, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When I first started, I just I would say anything to be edgy. And if I could take back some of the things I said on stage and now, like, I've had conversations with people where you know, the whole PC police conversation. But I'm like, no, I think it makes me more creative and interesting when I consider everyone's viewpoint. Like, I I don't consider it a hindrance at all to be... Me either. And I think that that at first I felt like it was. I think that at the beginning of this sort of, you know, um, movement that we've seen develop over the last couple of years, I think at the beginning of it, I did feel that sort of like, you know, it's wrong to censor, um, you know, I, there was a part of me that was just sort of having this, like, knee-jerk reaction of, like, I want to say what I want to say when I want to say it. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I, you know, you, I mean, if you're a thoughtful person, you quickly realize that, like, no, actually, um, there are ways to be just as funny but inclusive and not hurtful, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can I don't think I was ever intentionally hurtful ever um, in anything that I've done, but it's just – it's just about that idea of consideration, you exactly. know, and why not? Like, I mean, when people get so up in arms about, like, people being considerate, it's like, oh, my God, how does that even make any sense? Yeah, you are literally, exactly, that's a perfect way to say it, is, like, you're upset that someone's being considerate. Yeah, and, that doesn't make any sense to me. And that is the upside of, like, everyone being their own Carrie Bradshaw and, and documenting their own life is, if I want to understand cultural appropriation, which I didn't at first, like you said, a few years ago, I was like, oh, come on, really? Then I read a couple blogs and I was like, oh, okay, this person worded it really well. I understand what they mean now and I will be sensitive to that and I'm not going to I mean, isn't that just like so logical and like the number of people that are so against evolving mm-hmm. astounds me. And do you, you think know, it's it an really ego thing? Because in the past, like for me, it's hard for me to look at my old material. And like you said, like, I'm going to say what I want to say when I want to say it. And then you look back and you're like, oh, God. So, like, are there people that rather than change and have to feel bad about it would just like to stay the same and not have to feel bad about it? Um, I think that's like 90% of straight white males. <laughs> Um, honest, I mean, maybe 90% yeah. is pushing it, but, um, I feel like definitely within comedy, there's this segment of sort of old thinking and they're not even necessarily old people, but just old thinking straight white guys who cling to this idea of free speech, mm-hmm. um, 
as if um, as if there's some kind of you know I don't know what the word is, but they they hold it up as this sort of you know beacon. But I think it's just them holding on to their power. The idea like of having to be thoughtful is some kind of at least in the way they see it a loss of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think they can handle that. They they are just too used to being able to say what they want to whoever they want with no consequence, with no responsibility. And now that we're all being asked to be accountable for the things that we say and the things that we do, they can't really handle that. Yeah, and it's so it's it's as easy as asking someone how how could I better word that? Like we're not saying throw out you know, 20 years of material that you've written. We're just saying, examine it and talk to someone about it. Like this episode, if they'd have had a trans person in the writer's room, half the things that were said and done wouldn't have been said and done. Exactly. That's that's all it's about. It's just, it's not about taking anything away from anybody. It's about just everyone being included. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Um, and the fact that there are so many people that regard, like, language consideration as a threat to their freedom of speech, it's really not that at all. It's just asking for consideration and respect for everyone. That's all it is. And I don't understand how people can see that negatively. No, it's, yeah. Do you, um, do you ever confront people about their material? Um, not on a personal basis, but like I've, I think that I have found myself sort of unwillingly in this, in this role of, I wouldn't say activist, but, um, I feel like even just recently, like I, do you know, you, are you familiar with, um, Chantal Morostica? Yes. Uh, She's a great comedian. Um, and we put on a show together um called Queer and Present Danger. Chantal organizes it and brings it all over Canada and they brought it to Montreal. And I worked with Chantal on the show and it was a great weekend and then the last night our late show we had this insanely um homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic audience mm-hmm. which was very crazy. I don't even fully understand what happened or why it happened, but they were just there and it was this very hostile environment and the comedians didn't really know how to handle it. No one really knew how to handle what was going on in the moment. Um, and I had written something about it like the day later just to, you know, because I feel like that moment really cemented for me why queer and feminist positive shows in comedy are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there were certain people that sort of like took it as like an attack on like cis white males. It's and so frustrating. It's so frustrating. It's like, you know what? That's not the point of what I was saying at all. I wasn't blaming anyone for what happened. My point is just homophobia and transphobia are still insanely real. Um, yeah. So is misogyny and like, I mean, there's a billion and one examples to list and it's like the misogyny and homophobia and transphobia of the time that we're living in right now is so blatant. The fact that we need to prove to people that it's still there is insane to me. Oh, and I know. Yeah. this total disregard um, for other people's experiences. And that's what's upsetting because I feel like if I am an activist in any way, or if I am an outspoken person about these issues, 
it's not to self-aggrandize myself in any way. It's just to be hopefully part of some kind of solution that just brings us all together. It's not about pointing fingers. It's not about blaming anyone for anything. It's just about can we all just open our minds a little bit? Can we all just do a little bit more reading? Can we all just be a little bit more understanding? That, yeah. That's, you know, that's it. I don't think that's asking for a lot. Well, and and it's it's really not. And uh, we both had really great conversations recently with Rebecca Collar, did a show with her, and someone accused her of having a racist joke. And it was, they called her out on stage and heckled her, which wasn't fair. But afterward, even she, who'd just been, you know, humiliated, she was like, I'm going to think about that joke and see if I can word it better and make it more clear what my intention was. And like, Exactly. Yeah. I had a joke recently. I had a joke recently that was uh, that dealt with race thematically. For the first time, um, someone uh, strangely thought that I was a black woman. Okay. um, Which is weird and funny. Um, And I sort of made a joke about it. But even that joke, like I'm playing around with because I, you know. I just, I think there are things that I, like, phrased in that joke that just sort of, like, minimize other people's experiences, and I do not want to do that at all. Mm-hmm. So that's why, like, I don't think people need, like, when there are these moments where something is problematic, I don't think people should freak out. You know, like, even watching the Sex and the City episode, like, we're able to watch this particular episode and have a dialogue about it without mm-hmm. freaking out over what they did wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because we all make mistakes. We all do things with the knowledge that we have. And it's only in doing um, that you get to learn more. So I think, you know, on that front, when someone does make a mistake or when someone is doing something or saying something problematic, I don't think it's useful to freak out at them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's very important for it to be acknowledged um, and for there to be a conversation, like you said, you know, even just pointing to that example of Rebecca, just, you know, getting feedback on something that she had said and, you know, considering it. That Again, it just comes down to consideration. Mm-hmm. That's really all it comes down to. It's just about having a dialogue. It's not about pointing fingers or, like, you know, jumping down someone's throat. But I think the problem happens when there is a request for consideration um, and, it's greeted sometimes by a closed offness. Oh, absolutely. Or I think people are like shutting down the conversation. Like a lot of these guys, a lot of these comedians who, you know, create these shows that are, that can be very misogynistic. And I've, you know, especially lately, I don't know what it is, but I've heard from lots of people at different shows, you know, come up to me and be like, this comedy show was so great. They're like, you know, I've been to comedy shows before and it was so misogynistic and I just never wanted to go back. So, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like you're doing this as your work. You want to be inclusive because it makes your work sustainable. Mm -hmm. If you're alienating everybody, who's going to come see your shows? Exactly. You just want to broaden your audience. And um, that's something that started happening like, I can say that the Winnipeg comedy scene is, it's a group of writers, and they are interested in writing and being intellectual, which I'm very lucky to, you know, be in that community. But a couple of years ago, we started to have conversations about, is the scene inclusive enough? Are are there people that don't come to shows? If so, why not? And there were people that were very threatened by that, 
And I was like, hey, I love this scene. I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I'm just saying, how do we be better? And I think, yeah, that's the problem is sometimes people are like, you're saying that I'm not, that I can't be a stand-up because I'm a cis white man. It's like, no, I'm saying, please be a stand-up and an ally at the same time. I'm not saying don't do it or that you're bad, like, Exactly, but that's what, that's unfortunately, there's just a type of person that hears any kind of criticism or, or not even criticism, but just, you know, anything that is sort of challenging, um, is taken as an attack, like right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I think that sometimes those kinds of people are also the people who tend to make the most amount of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that those people, or I like to think that those people are the minority, especially yeah. now. Um, but you know, they are a loud minority. Yeah. A loud one. And like, I would think, I'd like to think that they're the minority because like, yeah, I used to be really limited in my beliefs, but now I have access, like we were talking about to so many points of view. I can't be that limited anymore. Like it's physically impossible for me to be that limited because I've heard stories from all these people. So the people who refuse to change, you would hope that that there's not many of those people left or that they're a dying breed? I, I really hope so. I mean, I, I remember, like, at that in now infamous Late Show um, this weekend, I was just confronted with so much hostility and hatred towards me when I was on stage. Um, it, I mean, trying to entertain and tell jokes in that moment was literally like trying to walk through a wall. And so at one point I just, like, I literally couldn't go on anymore. Like, I literally just, like, kind of stopped my set and just asked the audience, like, why are you so miserable right now? Like, why are you so full of hate right now? Like, what is the problem here, you know? What happened? Um, And just, because I had to, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm, like, I don't know what it is. I don't know why... There are so many people that just want to hold on to hate. I guess I mean I find it just so easy to open up instead of be closed off. Personally. Yeah, and did um, you did you get any response to that when you asked why is everyone being so miserable? No, not <laughs> at all. I mean I just but I I tried to spin it around because I was confronted with so much hate. In that moment, what I wanted to do was just like lift up the haters i'm like you know if you're unhappy in your life if you have a job that you hate like do something about it like Mm -hmm. take responsibility for who you are what your life is and if you're not happy with those things then just turn it around but i think sometimes instead of turning things around it's easier to turn against other people and blame other people and i think you know as you mentioned earlier like when you bring up this idea to people about just doing better that idea is so freaky to them because they just take it like they're doing something wrong and they just take it so personally and it's just easier to hold on to what they've known instead of moving forward even though what is waiting for them on the other side of forward is so much better Mm -hmm. so much richer and I mean I find even some of this like hard to articulate because it's just such common sense Mm-hmm. You know, I find sometimes like the simplest thing can be the hardest thing to explain because it's like, don't you guys just know this? Yeah. Like, don't you just know that it is easier to be a good-hearted, 
person, you know, to just to want to be inclusive, to want to make as many people feel good. Like, is that not obvious? I guess not. Yeah, and it's it's so confusing. Um, yeah, it's confusing to me as well. Like, I I recently saw some some video that was supposed to be like calling out the PC police in the education system, and it was some classroom where the teacher was like, "What's two plus two? And someone raised his hand and said four. And this, and they were like, "Incorrect." And someone else was like gender equality and they were just yelling stuff like gender equality and and um all these words that are and phrases that are important right now but they were yelling them out in answer to math problems so like basically the video was trying to say oh we we can't talk we're this is all we're talking about and nobody's even focused on real education anymore and like basically trying to say that everyone was really just too sensitive these days. And I was like, right. what is happening? Like somebody that I know shared that on someone that I, I know. know. That's, and it was inconceivable. As I was watching it, I kept being like, and it's going to twist around. And it's <laughs> right. going to have a different ending. What? And like, I was just, it felt so, I couldn't comment on it because I hardly knew where to begin. I know, and that's, like, and that's what's so overwhelming. And, again, like, I admit that, like, a couple of years ago, I was quick to say people are too sensitive, you know? Oh, yeah. And maybe maybe that is the case for us, small handful. But I think what people are misunderstanding is that this movement is not about political correctness. It's not about censorship. It's just about being as kind to as many people as you can be kind to and mm-hmm. how on earth – can that be a bad thing? Exactly. I think if you think about it less as changing, like I think everybody's approaching it from the effort angle. And if you, like you said, just went, no, just be kind, like just put it in a more simple way. Because if you don't know the proper term to use for something or you don't know the proper way to speak about something, you're allowed to, in a respectful way, ask someone a question about it. And I think a lot of people think that, oh, I'm just expected to know these things. And it's like, no, you you can Google it. Like, Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing, too. You don't even really need to, like, ask somebody, you know, like, all the information is there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think that, you know, on the other side, too, like, the other side of the equation is that, yes, there can be – um, a sort of um, reluctance on some people's part to, like, answer questions and to be educators. And, you know, I think, again, there are some activists that can be really quick to jump on people for making mistakes. And I think mm-hmm. that that's not a good thing either. Um, that's a good you know, point because I've been um, in those chat rooms yeah. or whatever uh, message boards as well where I've said something and someone's like I've I've been attacked for something I said before instead of gently told. Yeah, I just think again, like when if you're gonna if we're gonna talk about consideration, it has to sort of come from all angles, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that's what's lacking, um, and I think sometimes that's why this kind of conversation can become so hostile and so aggressive is because there's a lack of consideration on both parts sometimes. That's a very good um, point. And I've and, had um, 
Yeah, I just, like, sometimes I just find it overwhelming to, like, be part of this discussion, and I feel like as a performer, and especially as someone, like, you know, who is trans, who is a nonconformist, and who is visible, that I am... I'm just implicated in these conversations. Sometimes I don't even want to be, but I feel like in some way, you know, it's a responsibility um, that I have to rise to. Um, but sometimes it's very suffocating. I can only imagine because um, the amount of people like I make who... mistakes too, you know, like, <laughs> um, and it's just... Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't ever like to speak on behalf of like a group, you know. So, you know, when I'm on stage or when I'm, you know, doing a podcast or whatever it is, like I always try to make it very clear that I'm talking for myself and my own experiences. I, you know, never pretend to like represent a group of people. Mhm. In your lived experience, like there's no possible way that I can speak for the woman experience or you can speak for the trans woman experience. It's like, no, we are two individuals. Exactly. At the end of the day, there is no universal trans experience. There is no universal female experience. It's all so different. And there will be overlap in, in people's stories, of course. And But, you know, it's really about understanding people as individuals. And again, I think that's why the idea of like kindness and consideration is important because we're so much more aware now of how unique each of our experiences are. We've all been hurt by very different things. Mm -hmm. And you can't anticipate, you know, what someone has been hurt by or what you might say to them that might be triggering to them. But it's just in difficult moments just to remain open, to remain considerate, um, and just always come from a place of love. And I think that at the end of the day to like wrap like to bring it right back to sex in the city is that like we we talked a lot about you know what were the intentions of the writers and what was going on in those writing rooms i think at the end of the day and i think that why we still return to sex in the city is that ultimately it was a show that was created with a lot of love mm -hmm. i don't and think they like ever came from a malicious place and i think yeah that's a good point because i think it comes across as so incredibly tone deaf now, but what they meant by, and then Samantha threw them a party on the rooftop. Like, I think they were trying to show that, oh, and then we, and then we all made up. I just think it was way too one dimensional and like everything getting wrapped up in a, in a neat little package. But I think they were trying to portray these characters as loving with that. Yeah. Just, or like the idea that you can, see someone and judge them, but that your judgment can be wrong and that you come out of it on the other side with a better understanding of that person and maybe even a friendship, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you. It definitely, like, it it just wraps up way too neatly and it doesn't, there's so much that's left out, it's insane. But mm -hmm. I think that, you know, as tone deaf as Sex and the City can be, not just in this episode, but in so many others, at the end of the day, you know, the intention was was not to hurt. Mm -hmm. The intention, like, it's interesting how, for me, the intention was to show different sides of, of female sexuality. But then they often, especially in this episode, where they miss the mark is they keep saying men are like this and women are like this and these are half men, half women, and they're they're being so gendered. 
So yes. it's like it's coming. It is from... a show that really fixates on the gender binary. I mean, a great example of that, and it's also in season three, is the episode where Carrie dates the young bisexual guy. Oh God, yeah, I have an episode like, about that. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it, so I won't talk about it. But I mean, I feel like those two episodes are very related. They um, are. I feel like Cockadoodle Doo, and I think that one's called Boy Girl. Or Bo- I don't remember. Yeah, what that Boy is. Girl, Boy Girl. And then I found right. online there's an alternate title for it. I don't remember, but I always, I always knew it as Boy Girl, Boy Girl. Right. I feel like those, these two episodes are very related. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like very limited views of gender and the binary, and these characters sort of. With the exception of Samantha, the three other characters, like, they really shut down when they're confronted with anything that sort of steps outside of what they regard as the norm. Mm-hmm. And Carrie can't Carrie can't refer to these trans women as women. She has to keep – she always refers to them in with the male pronoun. And it's exactly. interesting because – And I think that's also related to her always calling the roosters chickens. Yeah. You know, like, she, it's like there's this choice on her part. Like, she's making this, she's being corrected, and yet she still is saying the wrong thing. Ooh, that's interesting. You know? Cause, so yeah. I feel, like, she's so intense about, like, still, because she thinks it's cute, I guess, like, or I don't know, but she's been told so many times, roosters crow, but she insists on still calling them chickens. It's yeah, like there's this conscious decision to hold on to her ignorance. Like she doesn't want to ever admit that she's wrong, which I think totally ties into everything that we've been talking about, this idea that people have about being able to accept when they're wrong and how some people just cannot do that. Yeah, whether intentional or not, that's something that drives me crazy in conversation with someone is if you're like, oh, it actually happened like this, and they're like, oh, cool, 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 and then the next time you talk to them, they're still telling the story the same way. And you're like, but I already told you, like, do I have to tell you every time or, and yeah, the chickens thing. And it's interesting because Samantha, when she goes to talk to them, she calls them ladies and she's like nice about it. The first time she goes to talk to them and she's just like, Hey, I got to get up early. And you know how that makes little jokes and, and Carrie in the voiceover still calls them men. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it, it, it's, I mean, problematic is not even the word. Um, I would love to just ask them about this episode, you know, mm-hmm. but I really, I think, you know, in terms of intention and context, which I think are very important, I think that if, if we were to sit down with Michael Patrick King or we were to sit down with the Catholics in the city, I think that they would be very fast in admitting that that was wrong Mm-hmm. I don't think that the creative team behind the show would be the kind of people to, like, stand by this episode. I think yeah, they've all evolved, you know. I just – I can't imagine that being the case. Yeah, because they are, most of the writers, part of the queer community. So they've been part of this conversation in recent years. And I'm sure if they had their finger on the pulse then, I'm sure they still do now, or I hope they still do now. I'm sure they do. I, I just, and I think, again, that's why Sex and the City remains so loved, is that it was a show that was very lovingly made. Mm-hmm. Well, I usually end my episodes with uh, Sex and the City speed round. So, oh, my God, amazing. Yeah, so it'll be a little more, a little more light and fluffy. Okay, um, awesome. 
Cool. So first of all, favorite Sex and the City outfit? Oh, my God. The first one that comes to mind, um, I don't know if you remember this. Um, it's in season four. I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's the episode when um, Miranda finds out that she's pregnant. And Carrie tells Aiden that Miranda's going to have an abortion and she's not going to tell Steve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Steve comes over and Carrie and Aiden and Steve are all at her apartment and she's wearing these, like, pumps with these, like, little frilly socks and yeah. this, like, white jacket with these giant cuffs. Um, and she has her hair sort of, like, in a messy side ponytail. I just, I love that look. It's one of her kookier looks, but yeah. I just love it. I love the giant cuffs on the jacket. I'll have to, yeah, I remember that moment being very cartoony because she yeah, walks in was. and she, like, screams and she's wearing this crazy outfit. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I think it's not an outfit that really gets a lot of attention or that people really think about. Um, it was a very short scene, mm-hmm. but that outfit I've always really loved. Yeah, I'm going to revisit that now because I remember that moment and I remember thinking she looked... Like, she looked kooky, but I don't remember the outfit in my head, so I'll look at it again. Yeah. Um, which of the girls do you identify with the most? Um, Samantha. Yeah. Definitely. I feel like she's the only character who's really, who was ever really progressive. Mm. And I think that so, she's probably the character, especially watching it now, um, that I can relate to the most. When I was a kid, obviously it was Carrie, but... Uh, you know, as a grown person now, definitely Samantha. Yeah, I've gone, uh, I feel so differently depending on every individual episode. Cause sometimes but that's a good to... point. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, but I think on the whole, like, I just, I love Samantha's live and let live attitude. Yeah. Um, which is an attitude I wish everyone had. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I feel like I'm coming around. When I first revisited it, I was like, oh, Samantha, you're too loud and you're disrupting everything. But... <laughs> But now, like, she she is the one who um, often points out how short-sighted Carrie is and often has something to say about the new generation of sex, of sexuality and how that's going to be. And, yeah, she is – she's the most intellectual of all the characters for sure. Yeah, surprisingly. I mean, they're all limited in their own ways, you know, so I don't mm. fully identify with any of them, really. Yeah. Um, but, if, you know, that's true. definitely Samantha. Um, and do you have a memorable Sex in the City location? Um, oh, my God. Um, I love – I thought they shot Paris really beautifully. Mm. Um, I mean, I know that I should choose, like, a New York scene. Um, I also love that episode um, when Carrie is, like, dating the city. I think it's the first episode of season five. Oh, well, and And she, away. like, goes to Guggenheim, and it's closed, and it's super windy outside. Um, just that shot of her, like, outside the Guggenheim, like, with the wind blowing and her skirt blows up and she screams, like, that's a very, like, New York scene to me. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And a favorite Sex and the City boyfriend? Um, I mean, like, my taste in men is so generic, so, like, I love all the, like, random hot men that Samantha sleeps with. I love the <laughs> farmer that she had sex with in season four. The guy who says that was good. I thought he was, yeah, I thought he was so hot, that farmer. <laughs> so I love Samantha's, like, random hot men. Um, and out of Carrie's boyfriends, I think my favorite, um, yeah, I mean, I'd have to go with Aiden. It's such a cliche, but out of her, like, you know, three or four serious relationships on the show, 
I thought those were the best moments. That was the relationship that I enjoyed watching the most. Yeah, it was, it challenged her. And like, I don't think he was the best guy for her, but I did like watching her at the cabin, like trying to bake a pie and like, you know, yeah, all the things that came out of it. Exactly. Um, And my last question, we've already talked about feelings on the movie. So I'll ask, should Carrie have ended up with Big? No, I'm, um, I mentioned earlier, like, I'm still so upset that the show ended up becoming the fairy tale that it was supposedly against. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that the show should have ended with Carrie being single because the show was about embracing your singlehood and not being defined by a relationship, not allowing your worth as a person to be defined by the fact that you're in a relationship. Um, so I really felt like, she should have ended up on her own. But at the same time, in talking about it with other people over the years, um, a couple of people have always brought up that Carrie was never really secure in her singlehood, and she was very much the girl that was, you know, desperate for the one. So Mm -hmm. I think Carrie was probably too desperate a person to have ever been or to ever be fully okay on her own. So I think that character that I needed her to be, she just never really was. Yeah, that's that's a fair assessment, and it's interesting because they almost get there. With the last episode, she has a monologue that's the relationship you have with yourself is the most important one, but then she says, and if you meet someone else who loves that self, that's just fabulous, and then she yeah, answers exactly. the phone. Yeah, that's the last line of the whole series, and it's sort of a cop-out. Yeah. I feel like the best, like one of the most beautiful moments in terms of like a testament to, you know, being on your own and being totally okay with that was um, the episode with David Duchovny. Um, And at the very last scene when she's at the gay prom and she's just, you know, alone and she's like, this is New York, like anything's possible. Um, That was like one of the most beautiful moments in the show for me. That was a moment that felt like a real embracing of just loving yourself and accepting your circumstance and just being in the moment. That's hands down my favorite episode. I love that they're all acting like they're in high school and all the different things that come up, like Miranda at the big game. And yeah, it's, one of my, it's definitely in my top five favorite episodes. And um, I think there was a nice moment in this episode, too, where she looks at Big and he's like, oh, you're not going to hang out. Like, they're both naked under their bathrobes and <laughs> and they're sitting in his bed And she's like, no, you know what? Like, we've been through so much. And, like, yeah, in theory, we're great. But in practice, we're not. And she laughed. And I thought that was an amazing moment for Carrie, that she's there and she could go back to the way things were, but she doesn't. Yeah, exactly. But then that great moment gets undermined by, like, the end of the show, end of the series, you know, like, going to him. I feel like there's these great moments of realization and great moments of truth, but they always sort of get undermined. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, it's, yeah, it's always it's like, like... even you just saying, like, bringing up that last line where, like, you know, the most important relationship is the one with you ha- that you have with yourself, and then right away it gets undermined with, but if you meet someone who loves, you know, mm-hmm. they always sort of, like, it's always two steps forward, one step back with Sex in the City. That's a great way to, that's a great way to put it, and I feel like this episode is a perfect little capsule of amazing moment followed by terrible moment and just going back and forth throughout the entire episode um yeah so it's it's 
it's a frustrating, but that probably is why you keep going back to it is for those. It's kind of like a bad relationship that you're like, but remember that one time we went to lunch and it was great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, like, I mean, there are definitely worse things to watch. And, and I think that the great thing, and you're doing this so beautifully with your podcast is that it's still such a great, point of discussion and it's still and it's still sparking debate and it's still making people question things and it's still making people you know look at gender and sexuality and think about them in nuanced and different ways and so even if the show wasn't always nuanced and multi-layered and truthful um it is it still is the beginning of really important conversations and i think that's another reason that we still go back to it is that it it is provocative in that sense that it still gets us talking and talking about really important things. I mean, like, look at where this one episode brought us today, like all of these different discussions about sexuality and gender identity and consideration and political correctness and censorship. It's amazing what Sex and the City brings to the surface. We're flying above.